Welcome to Analog Modern Radio. My name is Nathan Queso. Today on the podcast, I'm chatting with the great Cy Moore. If you haven't heard Cy's name before, frankly, you're probably in the wrong place. He is one half of the amazing Kiwi wedding photography duo Bailey and Moore, which he runs with his wife Soph. Cy Moore, welcome to the podcast. Oh, great to be here. Um, well, virtually. That's the only way we can do it these days. Yeah, I know. Who actually, even if even if it wasn't the only way we could do it, it's still it's still the way that we could probably do it. Yeah, that's convenient. Something I'm pretty keen to chat with you about is working in collaboration. Because I think probably any kind of photographers or particularly wedding photographers, it's pretty isolating kind of job. You know, it's pretty easy to be kind of ego driven because, you know, you're not really answering to anyone. You've got a client that's really kind of the easiest client in the world. You're not having to make a million changes to things and send them back and forth. I feel like as long as you don't drastically fuck something up, people are quite happy. Like right now, you're hitting my absolute topic of the moment. Like this, right. this last, I didn't even know that this was going to be the gig, but I'm just like, OMG, like this is this is the plague of our industry. And I'm lucky enough to have like had a few experiences recently of working in like a larger team sort of vibe as well, you know, on a couple of big sort of advertising projects where all of this is just like right in the front of my brain, you know. Yeah, sorry, keep going. I just screwed up your intro. What am I doing? Like it's all we're already out of control. I'll edit it all out. I'll make myself sound great. And it'll be fine. No, but I'm just interested because, you know, you work with your wife, um, Soph, and I feel like some wedding photography partnerships, it feels like there's someone who's really driving it and someone who's jumped on board because it's like, hey, come hang out with me on the weekend. And, you know, they kind of do it together. Whereas you guys, it does seem like a real collaboration. So I'm kind of, yeah, interested to know how that kind of works with you guys. I think the, th- like the thing with Soph and I is that we met when we were both just exploring photography so we were both just kind of starting out and I was in the music game she was in the design game doing agency stuff and we were both just like pretty sick of what we were doing and we both just discovered photography so we kind of did all of our formative stuff around how we thought formally about imagery sort of together in the, in the same space you know often I think you find that, that lots of duos and not not always couples but lots of duos people who work together and shoot together yeah there's been someone who's established and they've learned the lessons at a certain like level and then they've they've realized shit I can't I just doing this on your own is like it's too much work you know I, I need someone else and they've either talked their partner into taking up shooting very common or they've like got their mates to join them who's taking up shooting or they've found a photographer who's second shot for them for a bit to kind of join them on the journey you know our industry has this whole even you hear cl- like clients like couples will use the phrase like second shooter and i'm always like what the hell what the hell's that like second shooter like an additional photographer or whatever you know and it's just like there's this obsession they're just the obsession with hierarchy and i think um i mean you and i've talked about this before you know like there's no hierarchy in art making there's no hierarchy and 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 so many things which are beautifully subjective like the idea that there would be a hierarchy of someone doing the important stuff and someone doing the grind work whatever is just ridiculous or even the idea that this, that someone's leading a certain thing it, it all just hikes back to that it's it's, it's a very corporatized idea of how you make things but it's also i think it's, it's an idea that like people who are who have come from that kind of background love the idea where suddenly there's a hierarchy to fit into they're just like oh yeah hell yeah okay I'm, yeah I, I mean I'll, I'll jump into that i love the idea of some people love the idea wherever they're at you know it's a certain stage in their art making some people love the idea of being second and the pressure's off and some people love the idea of if their egos got up a little bit more they love the idea of being first you know to be to shoot real straight 
at no stage of the processing of the day, if you're honestly really wanting to make great work, is that even a factor or a consideration in, in, in what you're doing? And I think, like, say for Sophie and I, we've just developed all of our things together along the way, you know, like either having conflict and thrashing it out to decide what we think about how certain things should go or, or completely agreeing and having an, having an idea and being like it feels like after X amount of runs on the board that it actually goes like this, you know. And I think that comes from not just shooting together but sitting in client in a couple meetings together, travelling together, doing workshop stuff together, thinking out loud about things together, all those kinds of things, you know, not just making the stuff together kind of thing to the point where, you know, we use light in the same way because we see the same films and we talk about the same stuff and we run the same Instagram feed together. You see the stuff that couples come back and say that they love together. We see that stuff. You see what people get printed together. And all of those things are just always little nudges constantly that just keep nudging you into experiencing the same feedback and saying, well, it must be this. Our thing must be this or it must be this, you know. Like, I'd, I'd say that, you know, Soph, Soph isn't as analog-obsessed as I am. Even the way that a couple of the old cameras that, you know, I shoot with all the time have influenced the way that I use light. And then, naturally, that's influenced the way that Soph uses light. Because, you know, say if, if, you're, if we're shooting a couple and then I'm, you're doing a certain thing on the rolly and then she's shooting a digital version of that, Fast forward and you see both versions alongside each other and you hear the feedback and you see the thing that people love. And all those things just even so, you know, they just keep nudging you a certain way together. And I, I think it's just it's just the doing it together and paying attention to the same things. Having having as much skin in the game together as the other person is is the thing, you know. When, when you pay taxes together, you've got all the skin in the game, yeah. you know. That's kind of like the thing. A lot of it is just time in the game as well, you know. Like it's it's kind of like the thing of you. I mean, you being a genius analog, fucking brilliant piece of gear would know the thing about. You often get people asking about a certain part of the process, like you know, shooting analog is really just about kind of insourcing and outsourcing different parts of the process in different places, and it just takes a bit longer than the digital process, you know. Mm. And you get someone being like, "Oh, I'm I'm not getting the result that I want, and this thing over here isn't working." blah you know um, and you, you say well try this change this part of thing what you're doing over here and someone who's used to a digital process will come back within a month and be like didn't help and you're like no 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 like a year do that for a year if you change your lab do it for a year mm. if you change this thing do it for a year and just get the nudge this way I, I think it's like in the same way if you're working with someone else you're like do that for a year and you'll and you'll find out you'll you'll bring it together. You'll think the same way. You'll be you know you'll have this sixth sense about where the other person is. You'll always know. Like say with shooting with Soph, like I always know. You know when the lights a certain way and we're in a certain situation. Having done it so many times, regardless of what's going down, you know that you just I know in this kind of light with this thing going down, Soph will be doing this. She'll probably be in this place and she'll probably be on this lens. You know, so I will use the light in a different way be on this lens and be in this place. And then you look up and you're just like, yeah, and as I thought, there, there it is. It's just paying attention to the same things over and over and time, and time in the game, you know? And I think that's the thing of working and shooting with someone else right through the whole process. You know, it's, it's, it's really, I find it really interesting. You know, I'm saying to people all the time, if, if you, if you have like someone that you shoot with, not a second shooter, but you know, if you have someone you shoot with, then take them to client meetings with you. Like go and do it together, and then someone will be like, "Oh, yeah, but it's it's not. It isn't always the same person." I'm like, "All right, I think I see your problem." 
Yeah. I mean, gosh. So it, it's kind of like there's no, the collaboration situation is you're in an art-making collaboration long-term and all that other stuff is the groundwork. All that other stuff is the, is the sort of scaffolding that you're pinning your art on. Yeah. You can't just show up one day and be like, hey, here's the, here's the gig. You know, it's, it's literally like asking someone to fill in in a band and come out on stage and play a, a ripping set at fucking Coachella or Bonnaroo or something without doing two years of rehearsals, arguments in the band room, you know, record company meetings, sitting in the tour bus and, and, and interviews on college radio. You're just like, this is all stuff, which means that when you step out, you just go, like when you're in a band, you can step out on a big stage and be like, yeah, fuck you guys, but also I know that you've got me, but also fuck you for that thing that time, but also we're good. You know, it's it's just like a level of, of it's it's going to be fine. Um, I feel like second shooters, it's a bit more just like an, an insurance policy for a lot of people and maybe just helping, you know, quell a bit of anxiety on the day, making sure they, you know, they're covering everything. But do, do you think with you and so like does it sort of keep you guys a bit more grounded because i re- i think it is easy to just let your ego just run wild you know i i think that because the situation that we're in our industry is you can if you shoot on your own and 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 i'm not saying everyone's like this at all but i'm just so many of, of my dear friends shoot on their own and uh the most humble wonderful people but if we can if we were going to generalize about the human condition in our industry it's pretty easy that you work on your own you shoot on your own you do all the post on your own, you do meetings on your own, you travel on your own, and then sometimes the only contact you have with the outside world during a wedding season is feedback through social media, which by nature, the algorithm feeds you all the stuff that says you are the shit. And it's, would be, it's pretty natural as a human to after a while just be going to believe the press release and be like, fuck, I'm just like magic, you know? But if you shoot with someone else and they're alongside you the whole time and it's sort of an equal partnership, you get put in your place enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, you get someone else who culls through your stuff. I mean, say like Sofa and I share, we go wedding for wedding processing, right? Yeah. And so you've got someone else culling through all your shit. Very good for the ego. Mm. You know, very. you've got someone else editing, like literally at an art level, like editing your shit out so that you look really good. And you're doing the same for them. It's 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 a it's a it's a pretty great leveler. But you've also got if you shoot enough stuff together, you've got um you've got the days when you're on and they're off, and you've got the days when you're off and they're on, and you know who's saving each other's bacon and all that sort of stuff. You know, and you know you know when you've cooked it. You know when you've ruled. You know, I think it's it's very very healthy for the for your ego to have someone else over your shoulder. It's very healthy to have someone who disagrees with you. Um, it's very healthy to say both be in a bad experience and say we need to do better. You know, it's, it's really healthy to um, have some victories together and be like, fuck yeah, that's like just all of those experiences together. I think it's um, like years ago I did like a, I did a really great course with this dude. Um, he ran like the biofeedback program for the Apollo program or something, you know, some kind of – Arch Hart, his name, some Dr. Arch Hart, some kind of like, you know, psych legend. And I just remember him talking about just the way, the basic way your brain worked, aside from all the different parts of how it's made up and where all the different centers are and all this sort of stuff, like this, like a basic idea of like an, an inner part of your brain and an outer part of your brain. The thought origination and problem solving, you know, is a very basic, apart from hemispheres and everything. And just being like these these two parts of your brain just they don't chat to each other inside your head. They chat to each other through your through your senses. So you've got to get a thing out for it to come back in. Which is just the classic verbalizing, you know. When something comes out, you've got a thought inside, it comes out, 
gets back into the outer part of you, the problem-solving part of your brain through your senses, writing it down, reading it, or hearing your voice or whatever. And that's just the classic, just the classic situation about how verbalizing works. Suddenly the, the problem-solving part of your brain gets involved and you're like, oh, yeah, cool, sweet, that's it. So when you work on your own, you're not really accessing the problem-solving part of your brain heaps, unless you're journaling, unless you're sitting down and having coffee once a week with one of your mates or whatever. But when when you're working with someone all the time, collaborating with someone alongside you every day, you have to, unless you're an absolute bastard, you have to, you're talking all the time. Um, and so you're kind of accessing this level of problem-solving together all the time from verbalising together, which is naturally going to see you in a, in a healthier more grounded kind of like space. It's also one of the reasons I think too why, you know, one one of the plagues of our of the wedding industry is that people work alone or they work in small teams. The bigger exploded version of, of having a good collaboration with, you know, with, with one other person or whatever, um, a good healthy collaboration is you, you have a look at how, you know, like on a big shoot, a start to finish concept execution like ad shoot works, for example, where there might be you know, 10 or 15 people involved over the course of, you know, three months start to finish and everyone in the room is super sharp and everyone in the room is happy to, to is happy if invited to develop an opinion on anything that's going on, you know. But also it, it's one of those things that you notice that as you get towards the end of the project, if everyone's been in, in on it from the start, they know what you're doing, they know what you're on about and so the direction or the critique or whatever that they give is about you know, we're traveling in this on this stream doing this thing. And it's like, I'm pretty sure that we these are the things that were important to us and we've built this entire machine around doing this. And so so generally the feedback and the input from the team, as the longer the project goes on, will be more and more will be everyone will be saying, you know, it'll be like, but wait, I thought we were fucking fighting for this. You know, are we doing this? But that idea of working in a bigger team and, and you just see that the ego stuff you know, when you've got a big team who are focused, the ego stuff goes away even more, you know, the, the, the focus of making a thing happen becomes even more important and the energy that you get from a bigger team, you know, to ensure that everything's happening well and on time and it's 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 working really well. You know, and obviously I'm describing the perfect world because everyone can go, I've been on big teams where it's been a total fuck up, but the idea of working in a bigger team to make really great work is, I think, becomes very appealing if you're in an industry where you've worked worked alone a lot, you know. Yeah. But it's I think all all it does is it just illustrates just the power of collaboration and making art and the power of being. I mean, God, like bloody Ollie Sansom. Oh, just forever quoting Ollie. You know, I remember him saying to me once. You know, you just like you want to look around the room on a project and be the dumbest. That's how you know you're involved in something that's gonna that's that's gonna be great. Mm. You know, if you look around the room. And you and you honestly think you're the sharpest one there. He's like, you're fucked. Yeah, quit because you turns out you're leading it. You know, but yeah, you you want to look around a room and just be intimidated and be like, shit. Like, how do I get in the room with these people? That's what you're after. That's kind of like that's career goals. You know, yeah. if you can have have a couple of those during your career, you're 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 on fire. And it doesn't really matter what it is. You know, that could be speaking at a workshop. That could be shooting a wedding. You know, that could be working on a fucking award winning TVC for Apple. It could like whatever. Like you just want to look around and just go. I'm in the room with some people who've got some firepower. Well, I'm going to pay attention. This we're going. I'm going to learn something. We're going to do something. This is going to be off the chart, you know. But I, you know, the the, the wider story of collaboration is really you have to have a. I think to be a good collaborator, this and this is back to the ego thing. You ha- you really do have to have an accurate picture 
of where your skill set lies. You have to have an accurate understanding of who you are and what you're on about and also be able to figure out what the other people in the room accurately are. You know, not the bullshit era of social media, PR, influencer, you know, fuck, let me blow my own horn, I'm all that. Just accurately, really, what you're good at. Not overly humble, not overly ego-driven, just accurate to go, I know that I understand this really well and I know that I fucking suck at this. So to bring this thing together in a really great way, this is me here and this is everyone else over here, you know, whatever's going on. Or just the stuff of like, I know that I know that when I do this, this is my natural game and I'm running just, I can run a thousand miles an hour in that suite. So I need to really pay attention to this other shit that I don't know over here, you know. Um, but that's, I think that's one thing that, that's not, you know, in, in the constant digital sort of sphere that we live in of people forever. Show, I mean, and I know this sounds like just basic bitch, but people showing their best life and pumping each other up and all this sort of stuff. It doesn't really lend itself to having an accurate understanding of what you're good at, mm. you know, and, and like what your strengths and weaknesses are. It really doesn't, you know. We, we're, we're sort of taught through all of the ways that we communicate now and have had for the last decade or so that hiding hiding your weaknesses is the way is the, is the way to go you know everything's a fucking strength and it, it doesn't make for good collaboration it just makes for for solo siloed people who are um who can be very difficult to work with yeah which is why i think you see more and more of it as well not just because people are having to work solo but also because some people just we've sort of we're sort of creating artists who can be very difficult to collaborate with you and Soph do a lot of personal work too like I, I like how you guys have your own sort of separate personal accounts and they feel very um different it's interesting to to look at Bailey Moore where you know I wouldn't know who had taken which photo but then looking at your personal stuff that's very distinctive and also I hope with the Bailey Moore stuff too I'd, I would I'd, I'd always hope too that you wouldn't know what's film and what's digital as well that would be the dream just humor me and say that that's true. But, yeah, um, you know, well, it like, is, and and that was something I was going to ask you about. Actually, is is that you know that I and I've heard you talk about that idea of using film as your sort of north for color correcting on digital. The digital stuff you guys do, I think, is definitely the closest looking to film I've seen, and just the I reckon just the nicest looking. Like it's just quite um sort of shoot stuff in the middle of the day, and it looks really great. Which I think you can do with film, like film just in any, you know, in sunlight is amazing. Loves to, just but loves the light. Yeah. yeah, I feel like you you definitely kind of f- figured out how to get that same feeling in, in digital. I'd love to hear a bit about the thinking behind that and how, how that's come about over time. Yeah, I mean, I, that, you know, God, you, you and I have had some hilarious car rides riffing on this. But, well, I, I think, oh, gosh, let me t- take it back two steps even. Um, you know, if, if you have a think about what as a human being, I mean, even if, if you're just, if you're sitting there, you know, editing on Lightroom or Capture One or whatever, you're basically faced with an image in front of you and a bunch of sliders and you move sliders until they get to a point where something in you says, that's right, hopefully. Well, in fact, it turns out that for a huge amount of people when they're processing, they're just like, is that right? That's probably what they're asking. But that's the thing. You just go, yeah, that feels right. That's That feels sweet. And the, the thing to ask yourself is like, how did you get calibrated that that was right as opposed to, someone else who's who's doing a different thing you know like what calibrated you to be like that feels like not just a color and tone that's accurate for how it looked at the time but also is accurate for the narrative you know the story that we're trying to tell and is also accurate for how much they paid me and is accurate all these things you know 
like where did you get where did you get calibrated? And I think I've always had this like strong conviction that a lot of the the way that our species sees colour and tone comes from like a, the last half of the 20th century, a whole bunch of film stocks. You know, when when the visual world like absolutely blew up, and we you suddenly had images showing up, and you know, not just illustrations, but imagery, photographs showing up in in magazines and in newspapers and um, in the cinema and family photos and people taking snaps, all the stuff that happened post war, you know, post World War Two, like like fifties, sixties, seventies, this crazy boom and imagery and, and stuff that you know that the planet was being having dropped on them like constantly you know and you can trace all of that imagery to being a handful of like film stocks i mean obviously like kodak triax like as a, as a black and white and, and all of the precursors to that they're all basically triax whether it's Veracrum pan through to the triax we have now and and any of the pan films in between all that sort of stuff they're all kind of like the same cousins of the same stuff and then you know you've probably got Kodachrome and then you know Ectochrome those two are kind of like the the, the parents that that give us portrait you know and they are kind of how we see the world in those eras aren't they I've talked a bit about this but it's like you, you think about what the 50s and 60s looked like you know we we can't go back and see it and you just think the whole world was coloured in Kodachrome. Kodachrome, this crazy fucking Kodachrome, you know. And you think about you think about the eighties in magazines and all this sort of stuff. This quite accurate coolness of how we saw the world then, which is Ectochrome, mm. which was the number one magazine and newspaper color slide reproduction thing. If it was being published anywhere, it would have been shot on Ectochrome, you know. And but what the the sheer volume of all this imagery mm. everywhere starts to form how we think about the world and, and, and what we're calibrated to think, ah, oh, that's right, you know, that's how it looks. And it's so it's so ingrained in our in our psyche and and how we think about how things look and should look, you know, as opposed to how they really look, that it's still it's still what our thinking is built around today. You know, you have to think about every preset that you can buy for you know, you need digital for you know, for Lightroom for anything. Even if that preset doesn't reference film, it'll it'll reference another preset. It'll be stolen from another preset that did try and reference film. You, know? you have a think about um, grades, you know, color grades and everything that you could, you know, you've got people working in motion dealing with, you know, and they'll be referencing things that are shot on film. You know, you have a look at two thirds of the of the um, motion pictures that are nominated for Academy Awards every year and they're still shot on film. Like it's all these things. And it, it still has this really, you know, not to just be like a, and I'm not saying it to be like a, oh, analog is king kind of things. It doesn't really matter. Just, but but the medium is is so dominant in how it, how it presents colour and tone um, in a certain way that um, it's affected how, what we love and how we think about things. And there's a reason why if you've got the budget, you'd shoot your feature film on film because it looks great. The grade is done. Grade done. Have a nice day, you know. And so that kind of affects, you know, if if you if you want to sort of show someone an image, you know, if you show them an image in cam in camera raw straight out of camera, for example, and you show them the same image shot on ultra, the process is kind of already done in one, so it's kind of cheap. But you know, that that look at one and be like, oh yeah, that feels like what the world looks like to me. And that what they're saying is that feels like a lot of other images that I've seen mm. out of the seventeen thousand images that that an adult American is presented with every single day. It was a fuck ton. That thing shot on film 
looks kind of like a huge amount of those and that feels right you know that's calibrating that's how you've been calibrated to it's the same as you know to, to walk away from the imagery thing for a second if you have a think about why people love certain foods and hate other certain foods you know why why a kid who grew up with say north indian parents would love a certain set of flavors and a kid who grew up in the north of scotland would find those flavors fucking terrifying you know it's they're calibrated to a certain set of flavors that kid from the north scotland could move to india for like a for a gap year and after three months they're just like holy shit i can't live without the spice this is all this is my life you know so you can get recalibrated but i, I think it's that thing of thinking why do you think a thing looks good mm. you know from color and tone to composition to narrative to like like where did you get it from and you got it from just being fed it ultimately which is why you know this, i'm you know, come back to this all the time but this is why your diet is so important you know, um, you got to feed yourself the stuff that you want to make. Um, I mean, you've got to discover the stuff you want to make first, but then you've got to feed yourself shitloads of it because you're recalibrating yourself. You know, if you if you grew up watching reality TV and fucking cartoons and you want to make, I don't know, Scandinavian noir fucking horror movies or something, well, then, you know, you're going to have to get your reality TV pretty fast. You're going to have to recalibrate yourself. <laughs> you know, human beings at, at an art level are just are, are just beautiful regurgitation machines. And yeah. rather than fight it, you've just got to put a whole bunch of fuel in the tank that you want to regurgitate, you know, potent stuff that you want to, that you want to pull out. All that to say, back in, when we first started shooting weddings back in, um, you know, 1832, um, that's how old I am. No, um, don't the gear types, you know, t- 2009, 2010, something like that. And there were just some fucking wild color fads going down. It's the early days of professionals adopting digital and just having a bit too much fun with what they could do with it. Oh, I don't know. I'd, I'd suggest that it wasn't. I, th- I think how it happens is you'll have a, a certain scene of people, you, you know, you might hang out with a dozen photographers, a dozen wedding photographers. And someone starts to like have some crazy peachy tones in their stuff. And you only ever look at each other's stuff, right? And so slowly you all just start steering to the left on this. Mm. If peaches on the left, you know. Um, and you're just like and then before you know it, you're just like, Holy fuck, like how the hell did this happen? Like there's no north. There's no like what's the good looking thing. Yeah. It's very easy if you've got a crew of people who are only ever shooting that stuff and looking at that stuff and they're not feeding themselves good north all the time like you know they're not going to they're not going to watch films all the time they're not like referencing classic stuff or they're not looking at other other genres of stuff you know really quickly the dial the dial moves off to the off to the extreme yeah and i I think that sort of stuff was happening and i just found it i found the scene infuriating because you know you go you go to the movies you go and watch films and it'd be like that looks like what i want that stuff to look like and so, like, I bought a 1V, Canon 1V, you know, because it took the same lenses as the Digi stuff we were using, which at that stage was, like, probably original 5Ds, which were the greatest 5D of all time. Like, holy shit. But also the lowest res 5D of all time, but, like, the most beautiful tones mm. where you had to, you know, oh, you had to shoot, you had to shoot with a histogram up because like notoriously underexposed. So mm. you you weren't shooting, you weren't shooting looking at the image on the back. You were shooting looking at the histogram and just always trying to make it peak the other way. We started shooting a few rolls, a few rolls of like portrait four hundred during the portraits as a calibration thing to just be like, oh yeah, that's we want to look like that. Like yeah. love the look of P four hundred and just like we want our digi stuff to look like that. Not 
be hunting down a preset that says it looks like that, but actually just make it look like that. Yeah, and over time, you just sort of start to go, oh, yeah, that's how it looked, and fuck, that's what we want to do. You know, your stuff starts to look a lot different from everyone else's. You know, not in a good way or a bad way, just you just start to feel like you're out on your own a little bit because you're just like, well, we're chasing this different north here, like, shit. But for us, it started to look like the films that we like to see, you know, which turned out were shot on the films on, you know, like Vision 2 or Vision 3, you know, which is pretty much portrait for motion. Yeah. And a lot of as as we found out a bunch of those things, you know, it kind of it all started to add up to be like, oh yeah, this is the this is the look that we want to chase. Spend a lot of time with with beautiful classic photography, like you know, Stephen Shaw to everything between, where you just be like, oh, that that looks like the colors, the color and tone that we want as well, you know. Which is everything to not just the film stuff, but it's everything to do with obviously how you see how those guys see light and use light. You know, the lens sets, the format, all that stuff. But at the, just at a basic level, you just sort of go, we're calibrating ourselves on what our audience is probably calibrated on, but they just don't know it. Whereas the wedding industry can have a tendency to calibrate itself on itself and get pretty high on itself. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's easy to forget that, you know, the audience for your work, couples who see your work, are being calibrated by the greatest directors and DPs probably in history working right now shooting stuff on film and being shown in a cinema like it's a pretty fucking high standard mm. and it's very easy to just kind of not look down and nose at, at, at people who aren't photographers or whatever or people who are outside of the art game but it's very easy to just think that we know more than them and it turns out that i promise you that if you've got a couple who who go to the movies all the time oh you're fucked you better bring your a game they're seeing just some incredible storytelling shot beautifully amazing use of light shot you know on an endless budget on you know fuck if if, if any of your couples ever saw dunkirk you're fucked mm. 60, 65 mil vision three like with the most incredible you know like three timeline storytelling shown in glorious you know 2.35 to one made by some geniuses made by some absolute geniuses and so I think, you know, you, you, we, we underestimate, underestimate our audience at our absolute own peril. Like, they've been calibrated by some of the finest pop culture that you ever you could ever hope to achieve. And, we, you know, I'll suggest that we'll never achieve in our lifetime. So, you know, I, I think you, you owe it to, to people who are looking at your stuff to pay attention to and be calibrated by the same stuff that they're looking at, you know, and, and, and pay close attention to it. And for us, this is just the longest backstory in, in history. But for us, that was shooting more film, you know. For us, it made sense to not just shoot it for fun, not just shoot it, you know, to, to inspire ourselves, but which, which we do, but but to shoot it also with a very deliberate, we want our colour to look like this looks like. So I want I want to understand how this film stock works in all sorts of ways, and I want to see who else is using it and what they're doing with it and why it looks like that for them and doesn't look like that for me and how this translates, you know, in, in, in motion and how this translates in medium format and how this translates on different lens and all sort of stuff um, and how we can get that look in a certain way. But it, but it's it's not... To emphasize, it's not like a this is a one-on-one post-processing thing. It's about how, you, how you're how using light and how you're seeing light and how you're seeing light in a different way, knowing what, say, a film stock does or what, what a certain lens set does and all that sort of stuff. So it's the, it's the whole picture. But I think it's it's that difference. You know, any time I see sort of someone being like, hey, we, you know, we, we're going to do a workshop or a course on, on post, I'm just like, no, nah, I don't. Like, if you're struggling with your post-processing, that's probably not very useful to you. 
if you're struggling with your post-processing and you look and you feel and you color and tone, what you want to do is learn how to see light. You want to learn how you see light in a certain way. You want to learn how light works and you want to get an understanding of, you don't need to understand how light works right across the board. You just need to know what turns you on about it. And, what, and, and you know, like like when, when you go to see a film, you just need to know what scenes you fucking love. You know, you need to know why you're a fan of this certain bunch of films or this photographer. Like, why? Like, is it is it because you, you see light and you see people in the same way? You know, is it because you see stories in the same way? Is it because you understand narrative in a certain way? So why do you love Coen Brother films, for example? It's because, like, these people tap into a whole bunch of, uh, like, a Venn diagram of things that will make you go, oh, fuck you, yeah, that's a bit of me. And it's probably a combination of the colour and tone that you love. It's probably a combination of the way that they tell stories. Uh, it's a combination of the way that they see people, all these kinds of things, you know? Why do people love Wes Anderson? People love Wes Anderson films, you know? Some years it's cool to love Wes Anderson films, other years it's not cool to love Wes films, but like, fuck, you know, like, why do they love them? For all sorts of different reasons, you know? People love them because they, they look like Kodachrome. Literally, fucking looks like it's like shot on acid-washed Kodachrome. Mm. You know, which has a beautiful nostalgia that straight away makes you feel like you're looking at the life, you know, if you're American, you're looking at the stack of life magazines that were in the corner of your grandparents' house when you were a kid. Obviously, the, some people are in love with the symmetry, um, and that symmetry is another super nostalgic thing from that era of publishing, you know, Norman Rockwell, like, drawings and paintings, you know, Life magazine, National Geographic magazine, like, symmetrical as fuck if you go back to that era of, of beautiful stuff. But also, like, the thing that everyone forgets about about Wes films is that it's, it's always the same people. It's comforting as fuck, you know. Yeah. It's, it just... It's the same shtick, does the same thing. And there's something about that that just makes you go, oh, yeah, I know how this goes. It's a bit different, but I know how it goes. Like, this is this is a good thing. Anyway, not getting, not going deep into, like, a, how Wiz works kind of thing, but just just more like it's, it's – it's, these are the things that you feed yourself, but, but more importantly, not you as an artist, but your audience is feeding themselves this stuff. This is the standard that they're holding you to. And it's a really fucking high standard. So it's, it's, it's worth investigating and looking at that really closely to be like, why, do I, why am I calibrating in this way? Why do I love this? What am I chasing? What's the thing? What's my thing? How do I see light? How do I see people? How do I see narrative and how stories work, you know? And how does my audience see it? You know, fuck, we, somewhere these two things have to meet in the middle if you're going to be successful. How your audience is calibrated and how you're calibrated. There's got to be... In, in the Venn diagram of things, <laughs> love a good Venn. Um, there's got to be more than just a. There's got to be more than just a little bit of overlap. It's got to be fucking ninety percent overlap, and you're going to be massively successful. I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. We're talking about Venn diagrams with Anderson. I I was asking you what what your favourite lens is. I think, and you started talking about oh, well, no, um, <laughs> fave gag. Yeah. It's interesting that you um like what you say about Wes how he sort of collects actors and and the Coen Brothers do the same thing. Whenever I watch Coen Brothers film and it, it's it sounds like the same thing when you're saying you're just slowly nudging in one direction. It feels like those guys are too. It's like they've got an idea for a film they want to make and they've been they've spent the last thirty or forty years slowly refining it. It's like they make the film, they find a few you know actors at work like hey we've got it right that time. Next time we'll just we'll just make him a bus driver and then we'll do the same thing and everyone will die at the end and and then they just start it again. And- like I, I, t- I totally get it too because I like a dear, dear friend of ours, um, Fran, 
her mum is as Pakia as you can imagine. Her dad is like this wonderful Malian dude, and she's kind of inherited pretty much 50-50 from both of them, where she's she's incredibly tall, beautiful chocolate-coloured skin, enormous hair, and she's kind of got all that her her gangs, her crazy long long tendencies from a mum, and and you know her hair and her skin tone from a dad, and she's like dear dear friend of ours. Only describing how she looks because she's you would notice that if you if you looked at my work you would see that Fran appears in all the time because she was an assistant of ours and Fran was always the one who was there when I was just like oh shit need to, either we're testing an idea or you you were testing what are you doing things just like oh Fran can you just come over here and she'd always just be like yeah sure okay yep sweet or you know you could call her and be like oh hey I've got this thing I want to do can can you be here at dawn in the morning she'd be like okay. But she also had this this amazing look, you know. She's a, a, she's a dream to shoot, and she's been in our lives for like a, you know probably a decade. And so there's two things together: someone who is incredibly easy to work with, and someone who's just has this wonderful look, who's absolutely beautiful to shoot. It's going to get shot a lot. And over time, as you work together and you get to know each other, and even on grumpy days or whatever, or when things aren't working out, whatever. There's no PR required. There's no, you know exactly what each other is trying to do. You know, you're very, you're comfortable with each other. You've built this immense amount of trust. You have a beautiful friendship. I understand everything about friends' features, everything about how her hair works and her skin tone works, and everything about when she looks good and when she doesn't look good, and all this sort of stuff. She understands everything, you know, about what I'm trying to do and, and when I'm agitated or when I'm feeling like we're ruling her. And she understands when we're doing a certain thing, even though she can't see the back of the camera because we're shooting on medium format. She understands what we're trying to do, you know. So you, so all the energy goes in for both of you goes into making the thing. It doesn't go into the process and it doesn't go into PR and it doesn't go into making the other one feel comfortable. It doesn't go into doesn't go into trying to make up for when a thing was not going well. It doesn't go into learning the other person, you know. There's so much about about shooting. If you even have a think about shooting a couple over the course of the day, when you're when you're making making a visual doing a visual thing, there's so much that goes into learning you know, the, the, the things that I, de- I described about Fran at the start, you know, what makes her up, what makes the outside of her up, which is, you know, when you, when I meet her parents, I'm like, oh, I see where this came from. You know, I see where your wonderful, wild, long limbs and everything came from, from your mum. I see, you know, I see your dad's ethnicity and how it's come out beautifully and, and, and your skin tone and your features and, and your hair and all this kind of stuff. There's lots of things when you're shooting someone, a couple through the course of the day, that you're figuring out, you know, whether actively or not, about how all these parts of them, these physical parts of them work well. And, I mean, the, the crude definition of that is just saying, you know, you figure out someone's angles, you know. But there's so much more to it than that. Like, you, you're figuring out who they are and how they've come to be and how they work and that kind of thing. And there's a, there's a fuck ton that goes into figuring all that stuff out. And so you probably, when you're shooting a wedding, by the time you get to the end of the day with a couple, you're probably ready to start shooting them. You got like at the end of the day, you don't. There's, you're not failing. You're not kicking ideas around. At the end of the day, you go like, oh, I've, I've got the measure of thing. I've got the measure of their personality and what they love and what makes them laugh and and what makes them cry. And I've seen them in much situations. And physically, I've got the measure of their bone structure. I've got the measure of of this feature that they hate. I've got the measure of how they hold themselves when they feel relaxed and how they hold how they physically hold their structure 
we may feel tense, all these things. This is all the stuff that goes into like photographing humans, you know. But when you've got someone that you've worked with over and over and over, you're not doing that. You know, it's, it's like when you shoot, like if you shoot like a multi-day wedding, like, you know, like an Indian wedding is a great example. You know, you've got a bunch of days with people and you get to the end of having shot them for a bunch of days in a row. And it's you're just, you're on fire. By day five, you understand all these things about how they're put together. And so, you know, you, you look at someone like Wes Anderson or the Coen Brothers or whatever, and they're working with the same people. Because, like, why wouldn't you? If you could call Bill Murray and he'd come again, why wouldn't you do that? Mm-hmm. Because you just go, like, I understand how he's made. I understand how he's put together. I understand what he's really good at. He's a loaded, he's a bullet and a a gun. He's a loaded bloody gun. We just have to like point it over there and shoot it at a thing and we're going to win. All this is probably one where I'm getting to this. This is just, it's an ad for like, if you're doing personal work, shoot the same people all the time. Do the same thing over and over and over. I mean, gosh, like um, there's a chef, Sky, Sky Gingell, I think is her name. Probably not pronouncing it right. Where she's, you know, her mantra for her team, for her crew was like, you know, um, repetition is knowledge and power. Holy shit. And if you have a think about if you're working in a restaurant as a chef doing, you know, 300 covers a night or something like that, it would be very, very easy for you to just go, okay, I'm bored of this. Let's do something new. But you're, you're the people who you're cooking for, like your clientele and your fans or whatever, show up night after night wanting your, your three famous dishes, you know. And so your attitude to repetition is really important. It's knowledge and power. Understanding and knowing how a thing works is knowledge and power. Understanding and knowing how, for Fran and I, shooting together all the time, understanding and knowing how each other work is knowledge and power. You know, for Soph and I shooting alongside each other, like understanding how each other sees light and having thrashed it out and argued it out and figured it out, repetition has been absolute knowledge and power. For Wes Anderson, working with the same people over and over, repetition is knowledge and power. It's very, very easy to, um, as you're learning a skill, to just get bored and move on. Whenever someone asks me about, you know, what should I do for personal work? I need, I need a big idea. I need, a, you know, I need an idea that's going to be. It's like fuck, you don't need an idea. What you need, the best thing to do for personal work, is just decide what skill you don't have that you need to acquire, and practice that skill in a whole bunch of different situations. And a whole, with a whole bunch of different people if required or with the same one person over and over if required, but do the same thing until it's so deeply inside you that it can't get out. And then you'll find that it starts to come out your fingers and show up in work, you know. Um, but you'll also, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll solve it. And I, everyone's like, well, how do you know when you you repeat a thing enough? And it's just like you'll, you'll hit a point where you thought you knew everything about this thing once you've done it enough. And you'll turn a corner and realize you know nothing about it. Yeah, it's about the point where you can probably move on to the next thing, which is literally an ego description. You know, you just ramp up going like, I'm the fucking king of this thing. And I'm like, shit, I don't know anything. About- I know so much about this now that I know I know nothing about it. Mm. You know, you, you talk to like a someone in medicine, you talk to a great surgeon or something like that. They always just start out telling you that whatever they've devoted their life to, how little we all know about it, <laughs> yeah. which you're just like, shit. Not comforting, but it, they're just like, oh, the mysteries of this thing, you know, and you're just like, shit, you've been a heart surgeon for 40 years, and you're telling me all the things you don't know about it before you operate on my dad, like what? Not great. But, you know, it's the same, it's just just the same thing, you know, it's like all of these people, like repetition is, repetition is just the most beautiful thing. I think about, so I was describing Italian food to a friend the other day which pretty much describes Italian culture, that the, the less ingredients you have in a recipe, you know, and the more you repeat it, the more you suddenly become aware of how these tiny variations in these things will constantly 
change things enormously, you know. But yeah, don't even get started talking about how the food is going to play off. <laughs> repetition is repetition of knowledge and power takeaway. Well, actually, one thing I find funny is when I talk to people about shooting film, professional photographers, and they just, you know, they almost sort of can't believe, like, oh, how do you do it? How do you know what you're getting? And you just do it over and over and over and over and over, and then. If you do the same thing, you'll get the same result. And once you find a result you're happy with, you just keep doing that. And it comes out the same every time. It's amazingly consistent. It's that misconception with film that it's inconsistent with, you know, because people are using different labs or, or they're using a bad lab and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, if you actually work that process out, it's kind of hard to go wrong. It's it's also that, you know, the obsession with tools. Our industry is obsessed with tool, the tools, you know. At, at, at a strange level, you know, like I think if you you don't go to a you know a Michelin starred restaurant and eat the food and then be just like, can I come in the kitchen and see what the fry pan is? You know, so like, who cares? No one cares. Who cares? Who gives a fuck? Like you care about the, the results. You know, mm. it's it's that situation that if, if analog processes help you get a certain result, then fuck yeah. And if if digital processes help you get a certain result, then fuck you. You know, it's the same thing. With, like, if you go in the kitchen and someone's cooking with gas or electricity, like, I don't give a shit. Just like, show me the food. Like, amen. Let's get on with it. And there's there's a certain there's a certain thing which is just like, well, like, I would always be interested not in what the tool is, but in like, oh, so you so you're telling me that that when you do it with this process, you've learned something that means that this is really great. I think that's the thing with analog processes and that thing with film where you just go, oh, you, there's something about this process that really works for you, which means that this is the result. Hell yeah. It's like this result isn't film. This result is you plus this process that gets this beautiful thing. That, I'm interested in the result and I'm interested in how you got there. I'm not slavishly interested in now cooking with gas versus electricity, you know, um, cooking over an open fire <laughs> versus cooking like it's it's just like fuck whatever whatever process is but I, I just I just want to know how you got that not so that I can imitate it but so that I can be like fuck tell me about that process you know I think that's where you move on from even talking about shooting with film to talking about analog processes and how they're a very different way of seeing from digital processes and it doesn't have to be about imagery it can be about you know it can be about music it can be about thinking about ideas it can be about writing things down in a journal versus typing things on a sticky note on your screen. It can, all, all of those things. Like all of these things just are very, very different ways of engaging with with ideas that people do every single day, not just shooting film but just analog shit, you know, mm. or real touching things that have a very different process, you know. And, I mean, we could, gosh, we could go through analog processes and list out a, a bunch of things about how that works, but, I, you know, I, I think – Photographers being obsessed with the tools versus the result, the process and the result, is something that I think as you as you mature and sort of your ideas and how how you know what you want to do with what you're making. And I don't say that how you mature as being just like you know, there's all sorts of different levels of maturity going on and in the art community, regardless of experience and how long you've been in the game. You know, it's like the, the two things that are often very very separate. You know, you can find someone who's six months in who's incredibly mature in how they see light and color and tone and what they want to do and and you can have someone who's been in the game for 20 years and who still fucking doesn't even know what they want to do usually that's linked to the diet that they've been feeding themselves you know mm. um but yeah i you know I, I would say that if you're going to have an obsession if you want to make great work you're going to have an obsession if you're going to look at what other people are doing um to try and get some answers about what you want to do don't look at their tools look at look at the results and look at the process Find someone whose work you love and ask them, what's the process? How did you get to that? Don't ask them, 
are you shooting film digital? Are you doing this or that? Are you what's the machine? How did you do this thing? You know, asking about the process, but and you'll you'll always just boil down to this thing of people being like, this is I learned to see light in this way. I learned to see stories in this way or see people in this way. You know, you know, I learned to um, like you know Lindsay Adario, like um, you know, oh. conflict photographer, like like legendary like photojournalist. She's like, oh gosh, kick ass. She's she shot a shit ton of shit ton of conflict stuff, like lots of quite confronting. I mean, I'm I'm reticent to say war stuff because I think it carries with a certain thing. But con- conflict photography is probably a better description. But yeah, right now she's shooting like the California fires. And yeah. if you have think about someone who's got a process that works for very confronting situations, you know, you know, and and the work that she's putting out for Nat Geo, it looks like she's shot she's shooting a war. You know, and she has a certain process of the way that she approaches people who are in the middle of like a high stress conflict environment. You have to think about a soldier in the middle of a, a firefight, a smoke jumper dude in the Northern California who's in the middle of fighting fire. These are the, the people are operating in the same way, you know. And so she obviously has a process of how she approaches someone who's under that level of stress with a task at hand to document what they're doing. She can be right there with them. And it works for shooting firefighters as much as it works for shooting marines in Afghanistan, you know. And that's the thing. If you want to shoot like Lindsay Dario, don't be like, what camera are you using? Be like, how do you see people under pressure? How do you manage to be a metre away from someone firing a fucking gun or using a water cannon or cutting down a tree, fucking fire, fire NATO, whatever they call it, you know. It's, it's probably terrible. Sound, but you, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, if, you want, if you find someone whose work resonates with you, Ask about the process. Even if they don't know what the process is, when they describe it to you, after they've described it to you and they've figured it out, they will know what it is. But, you know, it's the yeah. thing. If you ask, you'd be like, fuck, that's a good point. What is the process? Actually, I think it might be this. You know, mm. you're onto something amazing if you're asking someone who's never actually thought about it. You know, you're right there getting the raw material right off the, you know, straight out of their mouth when they're just like, fuck, you're asking some good questions. I think, let me think out loud. I think it goes like this for me. But in that situation, those people are probably only ever everyone's just asking you, well, what what ISO do you push your five D to? Like, and they never actually, you know, they haven't had that opportunity to think about, you know, things like their process and their approach because people just don't ask that. They don't ask those kind of questions. I remember Jonas saying years ago about ah, oh, we were somewhere like I don't know, walking somewhere down Jonas Peterson legend, walking down a street somewhere, and he just like stopped and he was just he said to me just like this is my light. And I was like. Yeah, Jonas, like, what, you know, we're going to get a beer or whatever, like, let's go. Um, he's like, no, nah, this is like, this is my light right here, going on right now. This situation's my light. He was, he was a lot further in, on in the visual journey than I was, like, then, and he, like, we're walking on, and he just says to me, he's like, you, you don't need to know how to use every single kind of light in the world. He's like, you just need to know what your light is and know that when it shows up, to just fucking drop everything and get on it. Mm. And, it, it really stuck with me, like this, this idea that understanding how you, how you see a certain kind of light in a certain kind of way and knowing how to use it is, is this thing, is like absolutely this thing. You know, it's kind of like, it's, I guess it's like the, the, the musical version of being like, I don't know, you don't have to be fucking be a jack of all trades and know how to play every kind of genre in the world. If you're a, a Swedish black metal guitar player, just be the fucking 
absolute best, sweetest black metal guitar player you can be, you know. Know that when the death metal shows up, you know how to use it, you know. Oh, it's a terrible, it's a terrible example. But, you know, like, you know, it's, it's just that thing of, like, you don't have to be, you don't have to know everything, but you do have to know what turns you on. You do have to know how to do a certain thing, and you do have to know how to do everything with it. And, and what I found, like, with understanding that about light is once you start understanding how this crazy stuff works, like, you know, it's a fucking star out in the middle of a galaxy that, like, fires its stuff out and gets gets to us on planet Earth after going through X amount of atmosphere, you know. I think it takes seven and a half minutes or something for, like, light to reach the Earth after it's, like, left the star in the middle of dying crazy. It's starlight. Starlight from a dying star in the middle of our galaxy that fires its way however many millions of kilometers, thousands of millions of kilometers it is through to get to, to get to us bounces off a wall and hits your couple in the face, right? That's what you're capturing. And then it gets onto your piece of film through your 1950s camera or whatever it is that you're doing or your digital sensor. Like, it's fucking starlight, right? It's quite magical stuff. So however you learn to see light and learn to use light, like, it's all starlight. And you'll start to start to see that same light show up everywhere. You'll start to figure out how to get that light everywhere. It's not like, oh, fuck, like the light that I love only happens on a Tuesday at two o'clock, you know, every third Tuesday of the month in autumn. But you start to be like, oh, I've learned to love to use light this certain way. And it'll be, it'll be a bunch of reasons for that, you know, like because it, it, I, can, I can control it or because it's fucking wild and wonderful or because I shoot with these in this certain way that makes it look this, whatever it is, doesn't it? But you'll start to learn, to, the more you repeat that game, you'll start to learn to see it everywhere. You'll start to learn to be like, oh, there's, there's my light. They like to reference that Jonas thing. You know, it's like, fuck, that's my light right there happening right now. Bam, can use it. Actually, and that's my light over there happening right now too. And I find that if I close the curtain just this much in this weird place that was shit, now I've got my light as well. Holy fuck, there's my light happening over there. The more you know what you're looking for, the more you see it, you know? Yeah. The more you realize that you love crispy fried eggs, the more you realize that there's plenty of crispy fried eggs out there for you. Like, you just needed to know that you love them crispy, not scrambled. What are these analogies we're coming up with? I like the egg one. That's great. Crispy fried egg. Just yeah. when you I'll often just, I'll be doing, I'll do scrambled eggs for breakfast every morning. Then every now and then. Every I'll morning. Just, every morning. Mm. Then every now and then, I'll just, I'll just do a fried egg, sunny side up, let mm-hmm. it go crispy. I don't know why. Laziness. And um, I'll be reminded, shit, this is good. End of story. Yeah. I'm going hard boiled a lot at the moment. Friends of ours own this like sourdough bakery that's turned into a juggernaut machine where they do a whole bunch of crazy stuff, right? And um, they sent me down like a little goodie box the other day because um, I'm sort of away from away from home base at the moment. And it was like a jar of pickled eggs. I've never had a pickled egg. OMG. It's literally like you combine an egg with a pickle. Two of the greatest things yeah. on the planet. Unbelievably delicious. Say no more. But that, that's just like boiled eggs put in pickled stuff, you know. It's like, so I'm on a boiled egg team too. It's just convenient. You just, to be able to hold a whole egg in your hand, just that form, you know, it's just, it's just there. It's the whole egg. Just holding it. It's not falling apart or dripping. It's just... Boiled eggs, yes. Fried eggs, yes. Scrambled eggs, yes. Poached eggs, those people can get fucked. But a poached egg is ridiculous. Like, it's just ridiculous. You've boiled an egg, but you took it out of the shell. Why? Why? <laughs> I never thought about it that way. Like, why did you do that? It's, no, it's it's already been, the poached egg's been done. Better as a boiled egg. You'll get, you'll get complaints, but the complaints will only come from people listening in old folks' homes because they're the only people who eat poached eggs. I'm sure I only have, like, three listeners. 
two of them are me trying to get the views, the analytics up. We're fine. There'll be no complaints. One thing I, I think about a bit, I've been thinking a lot about like my family photography, my pictures of my kids and when sort of like who those photos are for and when like I've gone past thinking, well, they're just for now and I'm just going to show them to my wife so we can go, oh, look, there's our cute kid from five minutes ago when we could just be looking at them, you know, right then. And I, I just think about how hopefully, you know, they're still being hung on to by like our, our family in who knows how many generations and that's a fairly obvious kind of one because family photos just hopefully get kind of treasured. They get handed down. But do you think about that, like where your work is going to end up and sort of who it's for? You know, in terms of like the personal kind of stuff, like you jump on your personal website, it's just this big, beautiful, you know, mosaic gallery of all these different faces and, you know, portraits you've taken. Do you kind of think about where where that's all going to live one day, like past being on a, on a website? I mean, I know those photos all have places, like you've taken them for a reason, but as a collection, you know? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, body, body of work, body of work is an interesting thing. I mean, I think it's like, um, even to zoom out a little bit, even from that, like the bigger question is even just, it's about um, audience questions are a really interesting thing for art, you know, I think. Think about all the times you've seen a film or a TV show or something where they've broken the fourth wall, you know, which all that means is just where someone's talked straight to the camera, looked straight to the camera, where they've stopped pretending you weren't there and they've played to you. They've played directly to you, you know. Even you know, you, even when you go to a play, you know, or you see a thing on stage, you know, that magical glass wall that, that the audience is behind that you're looking through, you know, like like usually people don't acknowledge it. You know, TV's a good example, movies are a good example. It, it's such a powerful tool it's it's so disconcerting to acknowledge the audience or to be acknowledged if you're the audience that um you see that like directors use it sometimes where you'll act they'll accidentally like an actor will you think that they've made eye contact with you and then someone else comes into shot and it was them but for that second you're literally just like fuck the magic's broken you know and then the magic is put back together all that to say that like we live in this interesting time where all the digital mediums that we use to they're like there's no gatekeepers anymore right so like art has always had someone insulating the artist from the audience art's always had someone who's sort of stopped it being a direct communication you know like record labels with music you know or, or studios with films or gallerists and, and publicists with visual artists and authors and but we live in this year and now we're, we're artists artists in the audience communicate directly and literally the worst situations of it like in the digital world are like you know you've got artists literally saying to the audience what do you want me to do next i'll make this thing for you you know and it's, it's a it's an uncomfortable arrangement like art works best when it rather than performing for the audience when it just leads when the audience follows it you know, I was at this this thing at CMJ like years ago in New York, which is like college music tune. It's like South by Southwest, but like kind of like a college music version of it. And um, who was the bass player of like Sonic Youth? Can, um, it's one wonderful woman, quite like just like an absolute legend of like indie rock, you know. And she was in some form with one of the guys from one of the guys from the Strokes. And like you know, when they were talking about Julian was talking about like. You know, like about this burgeoning sort of social media thing. This is like what 2012, or something. Like you know, like the, the rise of Instagram, all sort of stuff, and Twitter, and like all the sort of stuff that was going on, and basically very audience-facing stuff about communicating with you most regularly. And Kim just like you know, she's like the elder stateswoman genius, and she just like interrupts, and she's just like, man, I remember this time when like if you were like head down trying to make your art, if you looked over your shoulder and there were 10,000 people looking, you'd find that fucking inconvenient. 
And it's just like end of conversation. And, you know, it's a cryptic way of saying it, but like what she's saying is basically just like, if you're an artist, you're supposed to lead. You're not supposed to turn around and, and play to the audience. Mm. The beauty of what you're making is that you're doing it with your head down, that you're burning for it, that you're on fire, that you see the thing that you're doing and you're making it for the sake of whatever it is that turns you on at, at, at the moment. And usually the way art works is that you're sort of two steps ahead of your audience anyway. And the stuff that they're consuming and loving is they're coming up behind you two steps being like, oh, this is great. It's like if you knew what your favorite man was doing right now in a cabin in the woods somewhere writing a new record that's going to be released in three years, you'd probably find it fucking like, you're like, what is this terrifying noise that you're making? But as culture moves forward, it'll get to the point where that stuff's released and you're just like, shit, this is exactly what I needed right now. You know, The job of an artist is to be potent and a little bit further ahead. All that to say, you know, the beauty of, and family photos illustrate this perfectly. There's an old, there's like an old, famous old sort of thrift story kind of place in Brooklyn, which is famous for having a, like three or four of these massive bins of old slides. You know, a bin that's like, you know, like three feet high, just full of slides. And you can just dig around and go through the stand of the day, holding these things up and going through the stuff. And it's just like fucking, it's, it's a cra- I don't know where it came from. This crazy shitload of stuff, which is everything from fashion photography from the 70s to someone's like family road trip to the Sierra Nevadas in like 1962 to like stuff from Time magazine in the 80s to like all this stuff, right? And the beauty of all of this, you know, whenever you find old, like, like the Vivian Meyer stuff, the beauty of the Vivian Meyer stuff which illustrates this perfectly, is that she she didn't even develop it. She had there was no audience. She was entirely pleasing herself. It wasn't even about seeing it back. It was about experiencing the moment through the she was obsessed with the viewfinder of a roller flex, you know, seeing the world square like that. Mm. Even the click of the shutter doesn't even matter, you know, she's just experiencing it in this, in this way. People come along and discover this stuff and they're just like, fuck, the thing that they love the most is it's not performing to them. Is that they're looking over the shoulder of the artist? Is that they're just like shit? This is this stuff's wild, you know. And so the idea of producing art from audience instantly, which is the point of it, <laughs> instantly makes it unappealing to the audience. But the fascinating, beautiful, delicious thing about discovering someone's old Super 8 film of a family holiday in the 60s is that you're looking over their shoulder, like no one's watching. They didn't expect you to watch. It wasn't made for you, mm. you know. Um, the beauty of like family photos of, from another generation being found, but you know, it's it's like when your kids show those family, those photos to their kids long after you're gone, their kids are going to be fucking obsessed with them because you didn't make them for them. Mm. But you're just like, what is this? You know, the things, the, the the weird outtakes or the whatever or the stuff that's just like in the moment. There's no point to it because it wasn't made to show someone to illustrate it. Here's what life looks like from, you know, 2021 during a pandemic when I was five years old. You know, it's that thing of, like, as an, as if you're making art, and I know I keep referring to this making art thing. It's I, I think that the, the gig is that we've come to think of making art as being this high, refined, fucking stuck-up, pinky thing. It's not. It's just beautiful stuff that comes out of your heart. It's really, that's really it. Sometimes with no point, sometimes with a huge point, you know, whatever it is. But yeah, you know, like you, you're making the stuff and the attraction of it will be in years for someone else who discovers it 
is that it wasn't made for them or that it wasn't made with them in mind or that they're an audience who's looking over your shoulder at this stuff. And I always think about this, all the things about the photographers that I love. And Stephen Shaw is a classic one. You know, you look at Uncommon Places. He, he, was, he was driving around the States shooting fucking shitty postcards for a shitty postcard company. Here's the main street of Nowheresville in the middle of the Midwest, you know. And while he was doing that, he's, like, using the same camera setup to shoot, like, just stuff that he thought was weird, just crazy weird shit, just having a good time. Keeps keeps a diary of, like, for the postcard company, I was in this town, I did this thing, I made these frames, I blah, blah, blah. This is what I had on my expense account. This is what I had for, like, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And But, like, Mm. as mundane and as boring, that's the stuff he made for an audience, not great, but when he was just dicking around in the same town with the same gear on the same days in the same light, just making shit for himself that he didn't know was for anyone, the result that now that we see, however many years later, looking over his shoulder is fucking benchmark, crazy, absolute, influential, wild shit. You know, that, that's that thing of like, are you become so used to in this age of turning and facing the audience that if you're making something, you're tap dancing for the fucking audience on stage, that we forget what it's like to just be self-directed, push out the boat and go and do something for yourself, make something for yourself, be motivated by yourself, chase down your own demons or chase down your own ideas or do, do whatever it is that, you know, if. Nick Drake. Is, is a good example of a musician like you know who made three albums in his career that were all absolutely stunningly unsuccessful and then you know he, he had these crazy mental health demons that he struggled with and then he he killed himself when he was what, in his late 20s or something just incredibly unsuccessful and nothing really came of him apart from that drake would be like the one songwriter who is constantly referenced by every single one of your favorite bands but they only discovered him you know like 20 years after he'd been doing his thing. And he didn't make that stuff for them as an audience for them. He wasn't trying to impress them. He was just making this stuff to try and get this thing out of him. And it turned out to be amazing. I think that that's the struggle across the board, you know. Forge your own path, do your own thing, figure out your own stuff, and you'll start to make some stuff that may not mean anything to anyone around you right now. But one day someone will look over your shoulder and be like, holy fuck, what is this? What is this that's going on here? And that sums up family photos. And I think about that too, because I, I do it out of just my own desire or inability to not do it. Like I just kind of have to be doing it. Do you ever think about like aside from obviously commercial work and weddings and things where, you know, one day we'll just be retired and, and sitting around, but probably still just taking pictures, you know, that interest us for fun. Like, do you ever think about when or if you would stop and when, or when you'd be finished? I kind of think about that sometimes. Like I can't imagine ever being finished and I look at it you know you look at all these old photo books and it feels like those guys finished something because obviously they whether it was them or done after they died someone put all their work together and it's like here's their body of work it's finished I kind of wonder it's like did they actually ever think it was finished or were they just kept doing it until one day they just didn't wake up man gosh there's so many things to pull apart and all that the fact that you know even at the start where you said you, you just keep taking photos of your family because you can't you can't not I mean that sums up the art making experience it should feel whatever you're doing should feel like you can't not do it you know because you like that's that's how it should feel not because you stop doing it because there's no more billable hours left mm. or you stop doing it because people stop saying that they loved it or it's just like you just can't not you know it's how you experience the world it's how you see the world like with this holding this little 
machine in your hands and it helps you to communicate with the world, just to communicate with yourself, to see light, to do a certain thing, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, man, body of work is such an interesting thing, you know. You you don't get to decide it. Someone will come along after you and collect your stuff together and be like, this is the stuff that has a thread through it, you know, it looks like this, you know, or whatever. But it kind of won't be up to you. And I think the beauty of that is that it can't be up to you because someone else will come along and mop it up. And if you've got stuff that has a strong thread, a strong way of seeing light or seeing people or communicating or narrative or whatever the hell it is, that'll become plain to someone. It's just sure as hell a bit of hope that you did have something that, that did that. But it's it's also like it was the beauty of art, you know, like gosh, you, you could you could have someone who's just obsessed with a band, you know, and that band's been the soundtrack to all of their victories and failures and heartaches and their best summers and their worst winters and all this, all this stuff. And they're obsessed with them now and all the records and they'll they'll drive across a continent to see them play together festival and that will that own all their merch and they'll fucking stalk wherever they're staying and they'll obsess. And then you've got the next person along who just doesn't give a shit about them. It's the beauty of it. That the next person along is completely obsessed with someone else in a different kind for all sorts of different reasons. For all sorts of different reasons. You might hate the band, but you love for some reason a song of theirs is the song that reminds you of like the crazy first time you fell in love when you were on a road trip in the summer somewhere you're stuck with that song for the rest of your life you know that's like oof. that's it's just like you're stuck with the smell of old spice and <laughs> all of these crazy things the first time you had a crispy fried egg and a taco or something mm. you know like so so there's all sorts of reasons why people fall in love with things and there's all sorts of reasons why people can't let go of things you know not just critical acclaim and, and looking as this great art there's all sorts of things attached to it you know body of work is a really interesting interesting idea which i think is why ultimately as as artists and as humans like this re- repetition is knowledge and power thing we'll keep coming back to this thing and wanting to master a certain thing and wanting to explore a certain thing and wanting to keep going the guaranteed one way to make sure that you'll never be remembered is to just have absolutely no focus you know not that anyone cares about being remembered for a thing but the one the one way to guarantee that your work doesn't have any kind of thread is to just have no focus and get bored with shit. I always feel like if that's if that's what you're doing with your art making, you just haven't found your thing. Keep searching because you know eventually you'll find a thing that you're fucking obsessed with. You'll repeat it and go deep on it and want to understand it and want to grapple with it. Everyone around you will tell you that you've mastered it, but you'll look at it and go, "Oh, I haven't even started." You know, that's what you're after. Yeah. That's what you, that's what you're after. Um, but then when someone comes back and looks at your work in X amount of years time, looking at it entirely from their perspective and not yours, you know, looking over your shoulder back through the years of whatever, they'll see what they want to see. They'll see the stuff that, you know, and if that thread is strong, if you've gone really deep, there's a good chance that, that they'll see what you saw. That, that's the, that's got to be the motivation for repetition and for mastering things, for focusing and trying to figure out. And it might be it might be understanding how people work in a certain situation, like Lindsay Dario shooting wars and firefighters and pressure situations it might be just a certain kind of light you know i'm obsessed with a certain kind of light and the way it does a certain thing you know and highlights and shit like that you know or it might be crazy pastel colors or it might be a certain composition or it might be whatever but if you do it ultimately if you do it enough you just do it to satisfy yourself because if you were performing to an audience you to what the audience wants you'd change you'd change the theme about every 30 seconds for the rest of your life you'd get in there you know 
yeah, and I feel like that is how you do develop a style. You do the same thing over and over. Like, I, I mean, I do that with my photos. I mean, I feel like I'm taking the same three photos over and over. I found this thing that kind of works for me and I'm like, I'm just going to keep doing this. This is all I know how to do. You, you think you're not getting anywhere. You just re- you are just repeating yourself and then you, you, know, you do it for a few years and you look back at where you started and you're like, oh, I've slowly drifted off in this direction that I really like. You've ended up somewhere different to maybe where you thought you were going or you know you realize when you first started you weren't actually that good like you're like well i've mastered this now i'm going to keep doing it because i'll just keep making this great work and then you know you look back you're like actually i was pretty shit when i began but now i think i'm getting a bit of a handle on it yeah a a friend of ours is a chef he is always we're always hearing this yarn about this sort of stuff and he we were talking about making pasta and he he was like I'm like, how, you know, how do you learn to really nail this? How do you like make it super well? He's like, okay, he's like, what's he's like, what's your um, what's your recipe? What's your dough? What are you doing? Okay, blah blah blah. Yeah, and I'm describing in intimate detail everything that I'm doing, and he's like, yeah, yeah, cool, 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 yeah, okay. So what you want to do is you want to do that, make the dough, you know, let it rest, roll it out, same ingredients, same stuff, you know, make the sheets, make the dish, do the thing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it takes about like, you know, about five hours, start to finish, to finish the dish, do the thing. So, yeah. So what you want to do is you want to do that. Now, just do that every day. And probably at the end of the month, you will have figured it out. It's like every day. He's like, weird. Did you, did you want did you want to get good at it or not? Do you want to understand it? I was like, shit. And he, and he was just like, so what you'll learn is if you get all of that the same, you'll learn the longer you do it, how you can't get it all the same. You'll learn how on this day the humidity is different. On this day the phone rang. You did this thing. On this day you left the door of the fridge open, and when you put the dough into the fridge to like rest it, like the temperature was different. On, on this day the quality of the eggs, the eggs were three days old, not two days old. On this day, the, all of these things you'll learn. What you'll learn is that no matter how hard you try, you can't do it the same. And in all of those differences, you'll start to see the magic of the thing. You know you start to see what it's going to be like today. And he's like, you're dealing with like the 1%, you know, but if you deal with enough 1%, you start to feel like this thing's 10% better and this thing's 15% better and that sort of stuff. Which is just back to this repetition of knowledge and power thing. But, you know, it, it feels, if, if you've got a sample size of three, it feels like they're all the same if you're doing the same thing. If you've got a sample size of 100, you start to go, oh, yeah, actually, that was a fucking shit day. And this one up here was a super great day. But today we're just kind of somewhere in the middle, you know. And I think that's the thing about like, you know, someone asked me a while ago about, oh, when when do you, how many wings do you have to shoot before you know kind of how it works? Oh, I think like if you do 50 in a row, you'll start to get a handle on how people work at a wedding. And then if you're at about 150, you've kind of got a handle on all the things that can go wrong and go right. And then once you sort of get to about 250, 400, you've kind of got a handle on it. And I think they were hoping for like a three to five yeah. <laughs> down the bottom of the game here. It is, it's just that thing. A bigger sample size means that you're starting to sort of go, you know, you're sort of like, oh, I, I thought we were doing the same thing here, but I'm starting to see that this one is very, very different from this one mm. for a whole bunch of reasons that I'd never have seen before, you know, just like making pasta, just like it feels like you're mixing eggs and flour and rolling it out and cutting it up. Seems pretty simple, right? It's the same thing of like the shooting wedding. It's like, seems like we've got a bride and a groom and the family and they're getting married, right? Seems pretty simple. No, 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 no. Oh, no, there's so many things. There's so many things going on here, you know? 
same thing with making Italian food. There's so many things going on here. The ingredients seem simple, but holy shit, everyone gets a different result. This is wildly different depending on the day. And the more you do it, the more you start to see how different it is. The more you start to see how wonderful it is. The more you start to see that it isn't really right or wrong, but there's just a fucking brilliantly different thing going on today. And who can know why? And then you do another hundred and you just go, oh, I think I know why. I think I know I can see when that one's coming. I think I know how that works, you know. I don't even know what we're talking about now. I don't know. I'm pretty hungry, though. Pasta. Greatest food ever. Yeah. Well, Sai, amazing uh, to chat with you, as always. Thanks so much for making the time. I know it's a pretty uh, crazy situation you find yourself in at the moment, so I um, appreciate being able to sit down and feel normal for a little while. Oh, good nah, good times. Good to see your face. Good to see your beautiful face. Good to also, good to just constantly see your, see your beautiful work. Like, holy shit. Oh, don't, thanks, mate. Don't stop taking the same three photos. No, I just, well... Fucking loving them. Thanks, mate. Likewise, um, I've seen the squares pop up. The Rolly, the original square format. Oh, yeah, OG, OG Square, eh? Square is like... I'm in the middle of writing like a, a thing for Rangefinder at the moment about aspect ratio and, you know, having a having a canvas size forced on you by the by the camera system that you've... Some, that your industry somehow decided to use, you mm. know, and how absolutely wrong that is. It's quite, it's quite an interesting thing. Yeah, I, no, I'd be curious to read that. I, I think about that a lot. Maybe this is because squares are so simple. It is what it is. You just look through the camera and that's your frame. You just got to figure it out within that. It makes a big difference too. Even just going from like a like a 5.4 or 6.7 down to a square, just the way you can, I feel like you can weight the composition a lot differently. All you've got to do is just like show someone like 6 by 6, 6 by 7, 6 by 8, 6 by 9 to, to just suddenly see like, you just go, okay, tell me how your composition works for all of these now. Tell me how your rule of thirds works for all of these now, you know. Tell me how your leading lines work for all of these now. You know, tell me how your Stephen Shaw wedges work for all of these now. Like, it's 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 just like literally like, holy shit, this is like a wildly different game. And we talk about the way to use the space with the same rules and with the same terms, but the space, the real estate we're talking about here is insanely different. Mm. You know, or, or or just going from like super thirty five to like, you know, two point three five to one. You know, and so often the aspect ratio, the canvas that you're making your art on, and so the way that you're seeing the world when you frame up and when you tell a story, um, has been forced on you or chosen for you, or you know, or you chose it based on budget or someone gifting you a camera. You know, not many people just decided really actively to be like, this is the aspect ratio I'm using. You know, you have a think about four by three versus, you know, three by two or whatever, and as far as digital formats and stuff go. And no one's choosing, let's say, the digital system that they're using. No one chose it based on the aspect ratio. Everyone chose it based on, you know, the lens set that goes with it or the cheapness of it or the lightness of it or not or the fact that all their friends were shooting this brand of camera or no one's making any decisions based on the actual thing that matters Mm. which is the size and aspect ratio of the canvas that you will see when you look through the viewfinder and that you will compose your body of work based around how you will start to see how rules of thirds work and it's in fact it's like the most important thing like I, i came across this study by this obsessive german mathematician he'd gone through like all the online archives of all the great like you know museums and galleries of like europe where they're storing all the work of, of every great painter from you know, sort of from the renaissance on kind of vibes he just looked at all of the each each painter and throughout their career the different canvas sizes that they used the different aspect ratios they used 
and everything from you know how much their stuff was imported versus landscape, what the approximate canvases sizes were, aspect ratios were to the canvas sizes, why they'd chosen those, whether it was based on they'd made an active choice or the guy who stretched their canvases made them in a certain size or they stretched their own canvases and they were just dealing with whatever materials they could get at the time or whatever worked. You know, if there was any reason to it, if it was just completely random or if it was provided, all this sort of stuff. And you see this insane variation, like in painters, insane variation in canvas size and aspect ratio and portrait versus landscape and all these sorts of things, commission stuff versus work that they're doing for themselves and this wild amount of variation. And then you kind of see through that variation they kind of settle on a certain thing. But with photographers, and especially photographers now, you are shoehorned into into a system and people generally stay inside that system. You know, you have to think about every wedding photographer, you know, and they're either shooting, they're shooting inside the Canon system, or they're shooting inside the Fuji system, or they're shooting inside the Sony system, or so the Nikon system, you know. And they're generally shooting in the, in the same aspect ratios. And generally a whole bunch of people who hang out together will all shoot Canon, for example, and so they'll all be shooting on the same lens set of three lenses with the same colour temperatures and the same tolerances and the same stuff. And they'll all wonder, like, why does that all of our fucking work look the same, composition-wise and colour temperature? wise and all this sort of stuff you know everyone's just like i really want my work to look different to everyone else's you know while i shoot in the same aspect ratio while i shoot with the same lens set and while i buy the same presets for example and while i we all look at the same stuff and it's just like fuck um whereas if you go back x amount of years you know like to a whole bunch of different like film formats especially medium format you know especially roll film you've got people shooting in six by six or in six four five you know in six by seven six by eight six by nine six by eight which is really just six four five to be honest the giant version of three by four you know and and a, a host of different lens manufacturers and lens sets with wildly different looks you know and, and leaf shutters and all like a, a wide a massive variety of of ways of seeing light and using it and, and canvas sizes, you know, and, and everything. That means that, like, you can combine this kind of aspect ratio with this lens set to do this thing. And that just becomes the path that you set yourself. And as you follow it down, it's incredibly different from this other person who chose some path over here. Whereas now, we're just like, boom, everyone on the same path, you know. Even if you have a look at how sensors, sensors manufacturers of sensors and cameras, you know, Sony and Canon finish the story that's it um you know i think there's just all these all these yeah there's, there's just all these things of like that we're not thinking about i mean the, back to the aspect ratio thing you know you just go when you buy a camera you're not thinking what's the canvas that it's giving me to work on you know you're thinking all about all these other kind of things but ultimately the thing that matters the thing that you're left with the body of work that you're left with at the end of three or four years with that camera or 20 years shooting the same kind of stuff with the same lens sets, you're still just left with a bunch of stuff that was made in this shape with these measurements. You've crammed everything that you've seen and absorbed and all your inspiration and the way you use light and all the stories that you've told, you've crammed it into this. You know, and some people are cramming it into this, some people are cramming it into this, you know, but 
the majority of people buying a digital camera set have been shooting into a certain thing. And everyone just sort of says, oh, you know, like, well, you just crop, you can crop to it if you want. You can do this, you can do that. But no, you don't, because what you see through the viewfinder is how you tell the story. 99 times out of 100, you know, unless you're Dan O'Day and you just, he's just like wildly crops anything to be anything to be like, fuck, that's it right there. Yes, you know. But the majority of people, we, we, we aren't built like Danny the genius, you know. We, we see what's in front of us and we shoehorn it into the package and we tell the story, you know. So it's, I, I, you know, it's just, I think it's just another interesting factor of thinking, man, did I decide to do it like this or was this just presented to me as the way that it happens? And I think it's, for a lot of people, it's just been presented to them, which, which is a lot of the appeal, I think, of shooting crazy old film machines, you know. It's not necessarily even analogue thing. It's not even necessarily just a mechanical thing. It's just the fact that, like, you've suddenly got a different shape to work with, which makes you just go, fuck, what? Like that, people love six by seven because it's nearly, it's nearly like the classic thirty-five mil, but it's just a bit fucked, you know. So it's just enough difference to make them go, sorry, what? I need to reconsider everything I thought that came to me naturally. Whereas a square is probably a step too far, and six by eight might be a little bit too close, you know. Mm. But six by seven is just like fuck, and that is why, my friend, um, every six by seven camera is massively overpriced right now. <laughs> Because it's just outside of the box enough that people who have shot digi all their life like love it. Not for any other reason. Don't worry, squares will come back. Well, thanks, Si. Uh, I'll let you go. Good luck editing that. <laughs> there's, there's 45 minutes of egg talk in there. Hey, all right. Lots of love. All right, mate. See you later. See you on the internet.